This is the third time we've won. But this is the biggest win. We've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. Underestimate me, because that's always fun. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Iowa has now had its say in the Republican race for the White House, giving Donald Trump a historic margin of victory. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. Is there still a path forward for Ron DeSantis, who finished second, and Nikki Haley a close third? I'm Patricia Murphy in Iowa. The road to the White House goes through Georgia, but the first mile was paved last night at the Iowa caucuses. If Iowa's great news for Trump, he'll also be pleased with the results of our new AJC poll. It shows that at this stage of the race, Trump is leading President Biden in Georgia by about eight points. I'm Tia Mitchell spending my final day in Iowa. I covered the caucus events last night, but I'll be turning my attention to Washington to see if the House can sign off on a budget deal to avoid a government shutdown this weekend. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes in the agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning. I'm Greg Bluston, along with Bill Nygut in Atlanta, and Tia Mitchell, who is live with us from Iowa. Tia, you were out super late last night again. It's just, what, your third or fourth day there now? You're probably ready to come home. I am ready to come home, but it's so funny that now the storms have gone to D.C., so we'll see if I am able to go home today. And Bill, frigid weather here in Atlanta, schools across parts of Metro Atlanta have been closed, including my own kids' schools. So (laughs) they're home today, warming up while it's freezing outside. And we're all working from, uh, at least you and I, Greg, from Atlanta are are working uh, out of our houses as well. Although the real freeze isn't supposed to come till later this afternoon. I suspect schools are closed because of what they think is going to happen this afternoon when roads really freeze up. And my kids woke up to the great news, so they are they are basking in joy right now. <laughs> well, Tia, Patricia right now is on her way back to Atlanta. Her flight got delayed a few times, but she's heading home right now. And she filed this report from the Hawkeye State last night. 
About 115,000 Iowa voters turned out last night in the state's first in the nation caucuses. Donald Trump won that race going away as expected, winning more than 50% of the vote. I watched the results cast and counted at a caucus location in Boone, Iowa. That's where Marjorie Taylor Greene was speaking on behalf of former President Donald Trump. She found a very enthusiastic audience. Donald Trump won that Boone County, as well as nearly every county in Iowa, just absolutely dominant. What I found going around the state was Trump voters devoted to him, have voted for him twice already, have no question they would vote for him again last night and in November as well. They told me they liked him for a lot of different reasons. They liked the economy under Donald Trump. They liked gas prices under Donald Trump. They liked just about everything he did. And most importantly, and what I found most interesting, they do not believe the accusations against Donald Trump in Georgia or in any other jurisdiction around the country. I heard, in their opinion, those are trumped up charges. That is the witch hunt, really repeating the language of Donald Trump. It ended up winning the night for him in Iowa. He comes barreling out of the state, heading into New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley, who finished third last night in Iowa, really needs to post a really strong finish before she heads in to the South Carolina primary in her own state. Until then, we'll see how uh, voters in New Hampshire start to line up for these candidates. But we're seeing a very pro-Trump Republican Party. It's what we've seen in Georgia for many, many years. And that's absolutely the case in Iowa during the caucuses of 2024. Katia, we heard from where Patricia was. Where were you posted up last night? So last night I did some campaigning. Um, uh, We went to this closing day rally that featured like a dozen Trump surrogates, everyone from Matt Gates to Carrie Lake. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene kicked that rally off. And then Representatives Andrew Clyde and Mike Collins were also there. And they all spoke briefly about their support for Donald Trump. And then later um, for the caucus meeting, which I, I can't lie. Those caucuses were cool. It I get I get why the media kind of descends on Iowa and why the unusual caucus meeting setting is such a draw for the media because it was really cool. I went to Urbandale, which is a suburb of Des Moines, and I was with Mike Collins. Um, I met a guy who was 71 years old. He said he had never caucused before, but he decided to get in the game. He was in for Trump. I could tell, you know, I know there was a lot of hand wringing on how could they call Iowa at the time that the networks called Iowa, the caucus speeches were still being delivered. There probably hadn't been any votes, um, any votes cast, let alone tallied. But I could tell you, At the caucus precinct I was in, which was a combined, it was two precincts combined at one location, I knew that Trump was going to win overwhelmingly. So, again, it wasn't that the networks were trying to rig the race. It's just the writing was very clearly on the wall, and it was a good night for Donald Trump. Yeah, in terms of that early call, I mean, well, I guess not so early call because it was based on uh, entrance polls. Um, but you know, we always have calls at 7 PM and races that we know that when polls close based on, uh, based on exit polls and, and based on early voting numbers in some figure, in some cases, in this case though, you know, as you mentioned, people had barely even started to talk, let alone cast their ballots at, at some of the precincts around Iowa to you. So did you see any, any people leave, any people show any signs of frustration or are they just hunkered down and still did their thing? Yeah. For number one, I think a lot of people 
in the precincts weren't paying attention as much. You know, we get glued to social media, but regular people, not as much. They're, the precinct I was at, it's not like TVs were on CNN or MSNBC or even the local news. It was a bunch, it was, you know, 300 people in a gymnasium at an elementary school listening to speeches and holding papers in their hand, blank white sheets of paper to cast their ballots. So just because the race was being called, number one, there was no discussion of that in the caucus meeting that I was in, but also they just were focused on the matter at hand. So I know Ron DeSantis was really upset, but quite frankly, the outcome of the race was very much what the polls indicated. Um, Ron DeSantis might have done a little bit better than what the polling indicated. Nikki Haley didn't have quite the surge. But on the ground, people were just there to do their job. Um, I I also knew that Ron DeSantis was likely to um, end up in second after visiting that joint precinct. Um, there wasn't much of a Nikki Haley presence there. Um, there was clearly overwhelming for Trump. And then there was a minority there, but prepared to represent for DeSantis. Could I, you know, one of the things that I was really struck by, um, we nobody was surprised that Donald Trump won. Maybe some people didn't think he'd get over 50%. But the entrance polls showed the demographic vote for Trump. And if I'm DeSantis, if I'm Haley, um, if I don't want Trump to be the nominee, those entrance poll demographics would really trouble me. I mean, Trump won college-educated voters. Um, that's, you know, he, we usually think that would have been Nikki Haley's um, uh, territory. Um, he won younger uh, uh, voters. Again, we wouldn't necessarily have expected uh, that to be the case. Um, he won pretty well, or he did very, very well in suburban uh, uh, precincts of uh, Iowa. So he kind of won this across the board and defied our conventional thinking about who the Trump base is, at least in the state of Iowa. Now, we move on to New Hampshire, it could be a completely different matter. But it just seemed very clear uh, by mid midway through the start of the caucuses that people had turned out there was kind of this sense of of um almost like a, a McGreg, almost like people who can't wait to watch UGA take the football field were in it for Trump everybody's going for Trump and that was kind of the way it felt last night even though um half of the people who turned out for those caucuses didn't support Trump yeah, Tia, he scored a record victory in Iowa caucuses for a uh, for someone who's not an incumbent running in a race like this. Um, but as Rick Dent told us yesterday on Politically Georgia, there was two races. There was Trump versus Trump. There's Trump versus the expectations, right? And of course, there was the race for second place. And we wrote in the PGAM newsletter this morning, your jolt of daily news, uh, that basically there was, it was a double victory for Trump because not only does he score this record victory, but also there is no clear second place winner. I mean, Ron DeSantis um, had a narrow second place by a point or two, but it, it, there is no clear, you know, he can't go and say he's the clear Trump alternative right now. Uh, and especially heading into New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley's expected to do far better than DeSantis, so much better than DeSantis that he's headed to South Carolina instead of, instead of New Hampshire right now. Right. And also, I think that 
because of that, it's a lot of things that were coming out of after the caucus. Number one, um, Trump got over 50 percent. So all the kind of folks who want to move on for Trump and thought, you know, well, if we add up Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy and we get more than 50 percent, that shows that there's more than half of Republicans who want to move on for Trump. Well, that didn't happen in Iowa. Vivek Ramaswamy polled around 8 percent. He's already thrown his support to Donald Trump, which can only help Trump increase that. Also, quite frankly, as DeSantis and Haley um, battle for second place, which is clear they're going to stay in the race on to New Hampshire, where Haley is posed to, poised to do better. Um, it's not necessarily clear that, let's say, Ron DeSantis leaves the race at some point. He's at, in Iowa, around 21%. You can't think that that 21% is all a potential Haley vote. So there's a ceiling for Nikki Haley. There, it To me, there's for Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, quite frankly, because should Nikki Haley get out, there's clear that a lot of those Haley voters are not necessarily people who would support Ron DeSantis. So there's really no clear pathway for them to the nomination. So, I think that's I, what we saw. I, I'm sorry, Tia. I, I you know, it seems to me as we look forward to what happens in New Hampshire with the close uh, finish between DeSantis and Haley, uh, this is why consultants for candidates make so much money because of the spin they're able to put on. Oh, well, we were in third. But on the other hand, Ron DeSantis put all of his eggs into the Iowa basket and he only beat us by two points. To me, in some ways, this is like there's that great old parable about seven blind men who've never seen an elephant and they finally come into contact one and each one of them feels a different part of the elephant. And so they think the elephant is a different animal than the other six. That's kind of the way I feel about <laughs> Haley and DeSantis moving forward. I mean, the real elephant in the room is Donald Trump. And yes, I get that Nikki Haley has stronger support in New Hampshire, but guys, this looks clearly like Donald Trump's nomination to be had. Yeah, what path? What path to victory can either DeSantis or Haley uh, promote right now? What path do they have now? Let's listen to some of that spin from Nikki Haley as she tries to say that this is a two-way race, even though clearly it isn't. I mean, DeSantis is still in the race, but anyway, here's her spin on it. The pundits will analyze the results from every angle. We get that, but when you look at how we're doing in New Hampshire. In South Carolina and beyond, I can safely say tonight, Iowa made this Republican primary a two-person race. And here's Ron DeSantis saying basically that he is able to live to fight another day. But they were just so excited about the fact that they were predicting uh, that we wouldn't be able uh, to get our ticket punched here out of Iowa. But I can tell you, because of your support, in spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. Um, so could I jump in? Uh, Greg, I and Tia, I understand that as the primaries move forward, um, 
uh, people can gain momentum if they do well in a given primary. So Nikki Haley may, in fact, do well in New Hampshire. Her people are convinced she will because independent voters, Democrats can cross over and uh, vote in the Republican primary there. Uh, and that could carry her forward. I don't see much path for Ron DeSantis. But, but he, so he's going to end up in South Carolina. So is she. But all the polling in South Carolina shows that even though Nikki Haley was governor of that state, Donald Trump in the pre-New Hampshire primary polling is way ahead in South Carolina. So once again, it feels as if the path for Nikki Haley is simply blocked when she gets to her home state. And Tia, that's the challenge for, for, for anyone who's not Donald Trump right now, because the electorate in South Carolina looks a lot more like the electorate in Iowa as opposed to New Hampshire. And frankly, the electorate, electorate in Georgia looks a lot like more like the Republican electorate looks a lot more like, more like it in Iowa than New Hampshire. So if Nikki Haley does have a strong showing in New Hampshire next week, it doesn't necessarily uh, you know, say anything about the long-term viability for, for her campaign, especially as more Southern states, more conservative states in the South and beyond end up holding their votes. Right. Because what you're what you're alluding to just for the people at home is that in North in New Hampshire, Democrats, independents can participate in this Republican primary. Um, And so Haley has been appealing to them and she's appealing to her status as the Trump alternative, someone who won't be quite as MAGA, who could be um, someone who can go up against President Biden in a general election. And so that's been her appeal in New Hampshire. And it and it's looking like she'll do perhaps better in New Hampshire that, than she did in Iowa as a result. But again, that's not the way things are set up in the other early states. Uh, could I jump in? I, I, I've been touting Trump as the eventual nominee. I hope I'm, that doesn't mean that people think that I'm happy that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. I think the kind of campaign he's run, the kind of way in which he divided our country against one another is horrendous. W- one of the other things about the entrance polls that was incredibly troubling is more than 60 percent of people who turned out for the caucuses said if Donald Trump is convicted, they it won't change how they feel about him becoming the next president of the United States. So I'm in no way suggesting this is a good thing for the country. Um, but unfortunately, it does feel like it's a good thing for Donald Trump. See, I'm curious about that point about the, you know, the the polls that showed uh, that a, a majority of Republican voters um, you know, don't have issues with the the trials, the the chart, the criminal charges being leveled against Donald Trump. We've seen similar polls here in Georgia um, that showed that although some Republicans have reservations about the criminal charges, many of them think they're politicized. What was your sense from talking to voters on the ground about that issue? Did they kind of echo that sentiment? It's not only do they echo the sentiment about Trump being victimized and the charges. There were a lot of references. Um, Mike Collins in his stump speech didn't go into detail, but he was like, you see that case in Fulton County, it's falling apart. You know, kind of the allusions to Fannie Willis and the recent allegations. Um, But even it's such a national, our politics are so nationalized. So you heard people in Iowa We are in Iowa, the Plains, the Midwest, people talking about immigration, 
and how that's really affecting their lives, immigration at the southern border. And let me tell you something, people. After I've been in Iowa since Saturday, I have seen one Black non-journalist since Saturday. I have seen very few people of color. And I've mostly been in Des Moines and Des Moines suburbs, which are arguably the most diverse parts of the state because it gets more white as you get more rural. So, um, you know, the talk about transgender kids and the talk about um, uh, woke ideology at the schools, it's all the things you hear, quite frankly, it could be the same speech in Georgia or Oregon, South Carolina. It's just really not as localized. But then again, that just, again, goes to how nationalized our politics are and how the messaging is almost, because it's nationalized, it's out of touch with a lot of the local issues. Now, like Patricia told us yesterday on the show, that doesn't mean that they aren't hinting, you know, Trump, if he's talking for two hours, still can touch on some of those local issues. But when you talk to voters, they're talking about what they're hearing on from from Marjorie Taylor Greene and on Newsmax and Fox News. I didn't hear as much about what they wanted Trump to do specifically for Iowa. And Tia, how did those voters respond to the Georgians they saw? I'm, I'm sure many of them have never heard of Andrew Clyde or Mike Collins before, but many of them I'm sure have heard of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So what kind of reception did she get? So it was so interesting. Um, some of at the big Trump and it was a Trump rally at a restaurant. So it's maybe a couple hundred people there. And um, a lot of the VIPs kind of came in through the green room. So the crowd didn't see them until maybe they got up to speak. But Matt Gates came through the front door and the people went wild. They are so supportive of him. They think he's a maverick. They love that he kicked out Kevin McCarthy. Matt Gates is a star. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the fact that she kicked off this rally with so many other people on the agenda, but it was Marjorie Taylor Greene who was the first to speak. And she literally came out throwing red MAGA hats along the crowd. Like, you know, it was very surreal. And um, so no, they didn't know Collins and Clyde as much, but I will say that afterwards, people were taking pictures of them. People were saying, we appreciate you for coming up. We love what you do. We're going to follow you. So even that, they're they're building their platform in the MAGA base by coming to Iowa. Bill, does that surprise you at all? Um, no. I mean, we, uh, Iowa Republicans are largely evangelical. Uh, evangelicals are very much in the far right of the Republican Party. Uh, so we expect that um, they're going to support uh, a Matt Gates-style uh, Republican. Um, they like rebels. You know, one of the things that Rick told us, Den told us on the show yesterday, that's really kind of in keeping with what you're asking about is he said that one of the reasons he thought Trump would end up really clobbering uh, everybody else was uh, that uh, his supporters in Iowa, he's, he described it, I'll quote, he said, quote, want to show the rest of the country, quote, the middle finger uh, They They want to say, we're 
going to show you how powerful and important we are compared to you elitists out there. And certainly Matt Gates fits into that contrary um, image of someone who is trying to shake up the establishment at all times. And of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene is exactly the same thing. Of course, the New Hampshire primary is just one week from today. January 23rd, and the Georgia primary is less than two months away from there, March 12th. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we dive right into a new AJC poll that shows Donald Trump taking a big lead with voters here in Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives for me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. You can consider it your daily jolt of news. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. I'm Greg Bluestein here with Bill Knight and Tia Mitchell. Just before the break, we were talking about the Iowa caucuses, and I want to continue about the 2024 election, but this time with Georgia news, because we just released this morning a new AJC poll of registered voters. We're going to have a lot more news about the poll later on this week as we release more about issues, about we've polled on school vouchers, we polled on Medicaid expansion, we've polled on a number of issues. But the top lines here are really fascinating. Donald Trump is beating President Joe Biden 45 to 37 it's a clear, you know, that's beyond double the 3.1% margin of error. So it's a clear, solid lead for the former president. Of course, it's important to always know, note, Bill, that these polls are just snapshots in time. We're not trying to use them to predict anything. These races always end up tightening and getting closer, especially as the, the field is actually set. But what jumped out to you most about these findings? Well, uh, first of all, the fact that the, the simple fact that in the horse race as of this moment, uh, we have an eight point lead for Donald Trump in our uh, polling, but also the fact that um, 62 percent of, regist- of registered voters are are critical of the job performance that President Biden is uh, doing in Washington, and there's a slim majority of them that say they strongly disapprove of uh, Biden. But if there's one, let me throw something out and then see how you and Tia react to this. If there's one tiny little piece of good news for the White House, for the Biden campaign in this big Trump victory in Iowa, it strikes me it's that they can now sort of move forward for sure assuming that Trump is going to be their opponent. Now, I get there's more primaries, but it's looking like it's going to be Trump. And what that says to me is they can hone their message even more clearly on a general election battle against Donald Trump. And it'll be interesting to see if the dynamics that they choose to campaign against Trump move the needle at all in a state like Georgia. Yep. Well, I... I agree. I think it's interesting. Like Greg said, I think there will be some tightening. And Greg's article, um, Greg and our new colleague, Michelle, you guys' article did point out that there's still about 20 percent who either support other candidates or are undecided. And so, again, as other candidates drop out in this field, tightens 
um, into a what we every indication is indicating this one on one race. That'll help Biden a little bit and Trump a little bit. Um, but I think. And we already see this. They don't want to admit it, but we already see the Democratic Party making plans or considering the fact that Biden is much less likely to carry Georgia this time. And the good thing for the Biden campaign is he doesn't necessarily need Georgia to return to the White House. He'd like to have it. He doesn't necessarily need it. But it's looking more and more or less and less likely, maybe is the best way to put it, that Biden's going to be able to to win Georgia again. There's a long way to go. Certainly Republicans see Georgia as a must win. Democrats, as you, as you said, sort of an icing on the cake. But for Republicans, there's really almost no path forward uh, to win the White House without winning Georgia's 16 electoral votes. What will grab me, guys, is something, too, that both of you mentioned. But the, the fact that so many Georgians aren't ready to support either candidate um, as as this presidential race moves on, I mean, twenty percent um, say they're not willing to vote any any candidate uh, right now, either President Biden or former President Donald Trump. And these are, you know, as we mentioned, not unknown candidates. There's there's locked in opinions about them. So the fact that that one fifth of, of of registered voters now this is not a likely voter poll. This is a registered voter poll. So it's just, it's a, it's a broader pool of voters. But the fact that so many of them are uh, still so concerned, um, you know, means that, yeah, yeah, there's some voters up for grabs, but B, that some of these opinions are like, you know, we've talked to voters who say they have no they have no plans to vote for either of them, who are disgusted with this rematch, who say they're not enthusiastic about it. And Tia, in particular, you know, 10% of black voters say they don't plan to vote in the White House race at all. We've seen these numbers before. We saw these numbers in the midterm in 2022, and they end up narrowing as the election gets nearer. But the African-American vote is the backbone of the Democratic electorate. Democrats cannot win a state like Georgia without soaring enthusiasm and turnout from black voters. And, and if, there is a la- if there is a sort of a drag, if there is a, a deficit there, then, then Joe Biden's in real trouble. Yeah. And there's been it's probably a topic for a different um, show, but there's been a lot of conversation this week about who speaks for black voters. Um, There's a high profile national syndicated radio show host, Charlemagne the God, who made the rounds on CNN and MSNBC as kind of the voice of aggrieved black voters who are disenchanted with former President Biden. But then there was a lot of pushback and criticism of him being platformed and whether he's serving his own agenda um, versus being a true analyst of politics and someone who truly has a pulse on Black voters and whether he's part of the propaganda machine or just reflecting frustration. Um, And again, that's a big conversation to be had about the nuances when it comes to Black voters and also the messaging that Black voters, particularly Black males, are being sent to try to get them to vote for a candidate other than Biden or to sit out of the election. So it's a complicated issue, but it's one that Democrats and Democratic-leaning groups are trying to 
combat. Um, I think th- that will w- that will ramp up just today, actually. Um, someone who represents a black male voter initiative reached out to me saying, I want to tell you what we're doing in Georgia to try to increase turnout among black men and educate them on the issues. So um, we'll see how that shifts in the coming weeks and months. Again, a lot of the indicators should bode well for Biden. You know, gas prices are coming down. Inflation is stabilizing. Um, Today, there's going to be some agreements announced on um, low-income child tax credits that were very beneficial to families across the nation, but particularly Black families. Um, So uh, we'll see how that all shakes out. Bill, there is this disconnect between what Tia was just saying about the indications of the economy improving and inflation beginning to tamper down and and costs of household goods beginning to sort of normalize in some sense with how voters feel about the future. Because our poll showed that nearly three quarters of registered voters say they think the U.S. is headed down the wrong track. Only 15 percent believe the nation is going in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But let me throw out a couple of ideas just to answer your question more more broadly. Uh, first of all, the fact that twenty percent uh, say they you know they're up in the air or they may not vote at all. I don't think we should be particularly surprised by that, since this is a poll of registered voters, mm-hmm. not likely voters, mm-hmm. and and that makes a, a, a difference, of course. But but see, I really believe that in fact. Um, the um, the people out there who say they're not decided prove my point that now that the Biden campaign basically can assume, I know they've assumed all along they're facing Donald Trump, but now if they do it right, they can begin to zero in, not just on amorphous issues like he's a threat to democracy, but they can begin to comparing what they've accomplished in the White House um, and what they would will say Trump did not accomplish, <clears throat> excuse me, or they'll begin uh, uh, taking issue with um, the way he uh, handled uh, uh, things like COVID. They can get much more specific and start a real general election campaign that de- delves into issues. At least that would be the smartest direction for them to take, not continuing just with this notion that Trump's a threat to democracy. So I think in some ways, that 20% who are undecided shows us why this is a good time for the Biden campaign to really begin a general election campaign. Yeah, and Tia, Democrats have long said that once there's a head-to-head matchup, once the Republican nominee, whether it's Trump or someone else, and now obviously it looks like it's, well, all signs are indicating, <laughs> pointing towards Trump, that the race will tighten. But this poll was not all rosy news for Trump either. He faces his own challenges in a state that he narrowly lost back in 2020, uh, and of course where he went to war with Republican incumbents who refused his demands to overturn that election. Nearly one-fifth of Republicans say they don't plan on supporting Trump's comeback or are still undecided. And as Bill mentioned, it's a broader pool. It's registered voters, not just likely voters. Um, But still, that is a sign that Republicans continue to remain torn over Donald Trump. And even when you look at Iowa, you know, he he got 50-something percent, 51, 52 percent of the vote in Iowa, but there still means about half the Iowa Republican caucus goers said they wanted someone else. And that's why you can't count out President Biden, because he and his top allies and aides and advisors are all now trying to come up with strategies to win over those Republican voters who 
do not want to vote for Trump under any circumstances, but are going to need some convincing if they vote for a Democrat. Those Nikki Haley voters who don't want to support Trump, those independent voters who um, are concerned about the charges. And that's the other thing. Trump is supposed to be in court today. He is going to continue to have hearings on these various cases. Some of the cases are farther along than others. It is very likely that he will be found guilty, not necessarily in Fulton County, but some of these other cases. He could have a verdict against him during this contest before Election Day. Um, Very soon in the New York case, he's going to have damages that the court asserts that he pays to the woman who accused him of defamation and sexual assault. So there's going to be a lot of bad news for Trump in the coming months that, again, could further turn off persuadable voters. Now, it'll still it'll probably reinvigor and strengthen his base. But we know his base still is limited to just Republicans and Republicans are not a majority of voters right now. Well, Tia, while we're talking about the race to the White House, I do want to stay in, uh, in at least in D.C. politics. Lawmakers only have a few days to prevent a possible government shutdown. You've been tracking this in Iowa and in D.C. Is there a deal on the table? What's going on there? There is a deal on the table that uh, House Speaker Mike Johnson, who's a Republican, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer, who's a Democrat, they have worked on it. It's one of those kind of stopgap government funding um, resolutions called a continuing resolution or a CR. Um, But basically, it just keeps the government funded at current levels, usually with a couple of caveats. But for the most part, it's continued government funding. So the Senate is going to take a procedural vote today. Even if everything kind of goes according to plan, it's likely that the Senate can't do final passage until this weekend. Um, The partial shutdown deadline is Friday. But, you know, Technically, if the government shuts down over the weekend, not the worst thing in the world. Technically, if there's a partial government shutdown for a few days early in the week, technically not the worst thing in the world. The question, though, is not necessarily that the CR will pass. We expect it to pass overwhelmingly in the Senate. We expect it to pass in the House with the help of Democrats. But it's looking more and more that it's very this CR is unpopular among House Republicans, even more so than the continuing resolution that Kevin McCarthy put on the floor in September. Mm -hmm. That continuing resolution Kevin McCarthy put on the floor was so unpopular that it led to his ouster and eventually, and he's no longer even a member of Congress right now. This CR is even less popular among Republicans. There's a lot of criticism towards Mike Johnson. Right now, Republicans are falling into two camps. There are camps of Republicans. There, Rich McCormick and Mike Collins both said this to me in Iowa. They said, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to vote for this, but I get that Mike Johnson has to make a deal. I get that he's doing the best he can, knowing that Democrats control the White House, Democrats control the Senate. So I'm not I don't hate the player. I hate the game. I might vote no, but I'm not mad at Mike Johnson. But then you had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde, who kind of represent the other camp, who are like, I'm voting no. And this is a problem. Mike Johnson has a problem. They're not necessarily saying off of his head yet, but they're saying this is a problem. We don't like it. 
he needs to get his life together. And that's um, who knows what that means for Mike Johnson as speaker. It's going to be a huge test for Speaker Johnson. It's going to be also determinant whether or not the House, the U.S. House, is ungovernable with such a narrow right. Republican and they, their majority. majority is just two votes right now. If more than three Republicans vote against anything, Mike Johnson needs Democrats. But probably half or more of Republicans might vote might vote against this CR. And if he has to cross the aisle for Democratic votes, that might be the end of his of his speakership. Well, Tia, even from Iowa, you still have your pulse on Washington, and it turns out that the surrogates <laughs> for Trump and and for DeSantis, who went out there, also helped you with that story. Thanks so much for that update. We know you'll monitor this as we approach the January 19th deadline. When we return, Tamar Hallerman joins the show to discuss the legal and political fallout of the allegations against District Attorney Fonnie Willis. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to Politically Georgia, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months, yep, three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, so much more on AJC.com, plus access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community right now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. Over the weekend, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis defended a special prosecutor following an allegation in court that she had a, a misconduct, alleged misconduct in a romantic relationship with him. Here to talk about these allegations is our colleague and co-host of the award-winning Breakdown podcast, Tamar Halliman, who is recently featured in the New York Times from our Capitol office. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, first, we always like to give our listeners a peek behind the curtains a little bit. This was a, a, a bombshell motion that was filed last week, uh, but also one that you and our colleague, Bill Rankin, took a lot of time to vet before we published it. You had, you had seen it earlier. This wasn't something we just kind of willy-nilly just threw out there when we were reporting it. Yeah, these are stunning allegations. And usually we are not interested as newspaper reporters in you know a, a legacy publication. We don't want to concern ourselves in people's relationships and sex lives. I don't like making a habit of that. I don't enjoy doing it. Um, but these are allegations that were made in a court filing, not just out in the world with whispers, um, by an attorney who's a longtime attorney in the area who's well-respected, um, and this could impact the investigation. This court motion seeks to get not only the charges against uh, one of the defendants dismiss, dismissed, but seeks to completely disqualify the Fulton DA and her office from this case. That could have significant implications, of course, on whether this case goes to trial, whether it's successful. Um, and it also speaks to the DA's personal judgment. 
Um, we have yet to hear from the DA in a formal capacity. Of course, she responded somewhat in an address at the AME Bethel Church over the weekend. Um, but also, it's become a giant talking point among Republican critics, and it's one that threatens, if not to derail the case, then at least to very much hurt the DA's credibility. So that's why we decided that it was something that we needed to write about. Tamar, can I ask, you've spent time with Fonnie Willis. You've interviewed her. You've obviously watched her work closely. Um, she's always had this uh, image of being a strong, tough prosecutor with integrity. What, what is it that do you, did, is there anything that you see in who she is as a person that helps you understand in any way why this possibly could be happening, a relationship, a romantic relationship with the special prosecutor who she appoints? I don't want to speak for the DA. I don't know about her personal life. We haven't heard her formal response. But as you heard her say in her remarks over the weekend, and she said it over and over again, I am a flawed, hard-headed human. And you can certainly see that hard-headedness as she's pursued her cases um, over the last two-plus decades in the Fulton DA's office. Um, I don't know if these allegations are true. Um, I don't know if they are true, what was going through her head. Um, but certainly, she's a strong-willed prosecutor um, and one who, when she sets her mind to things, um, will go through with them even if she's being criticized for them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Tamar, thanks for joining us this morning. Can you talk a little bit about what, you know, the 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 divorce lawyer um, made the allegations and then the Trump lawyer has picked them up as proof that perhaps the uh, case is flawed or that Fonnie Willis shouldn't be on the case? But I know you talked to some legal experts who cast doubt on even if the allegations are proven to be true, what kind of effect they would have on the case. Can you talk about some of the analysis on what could or or could not happen? You know, the difference between people saying, hey, Fonnie, you probably didn't make the best decision if this is true versus, hey, Fonnie, you've ruined this case. Yeah. Well, for starters, Trump's attorney is actually holding his fire. Uh, Steve Sadow, his lead Atlanta counsel, he spoke up at a hearing on Friday where basically said, he said, I might be interested in joining onto this legal filing from Michael Roman, uh, the defendant who's made those allegations, but I want to wait and hear what the DA says first. So he's definitely keeping his powder dry, at least for now, but he mentioned, if true, obviously, extremely salacious stuff. Um, and you're right, Tia, there seems to be an emerging um, an emerging consensus among legal experts. And of course, we don't know how the DA is going to respond formally, which will be very different, I think, or somewhat different from what she was saying in her remarks at the AME Church over the weekend. Um, maybe she is able to explain away some of these allegations. I think it could make a difference if it's true that she went on these vacations with Nathan Wade, um, that she paid him back, I think could be a significant detail in all this. Or maybe there's an outright denial. She has not confirmed or denied whether she's in a relationship with him, but many people have taken that silence um, as a telling sign. But you're right, Tia. Many legal experts have said, even if these allegations are true, um, it's, pro it's 
might not be enough to to get this case thrown out or to get her removed from that case. But you still have an optics problem and one that Republicans are, of course, going to take full advantage of. And you've seen it so far in the legislature uh, with Donald Trump, who, of course, has used every opportunity to undermine this case um, over the last couple of days and the credibility of the DA, and especially for something that was already considered very partisan already. Over the last couple of days, she seemed to have lost any sort of good grace or benefit of the doubt that even more mainstream Republicans like Brian Kemp, Speaker Burns, were giving her. Tamar, is the issue here, is there an issue, is there a legal issue if she has a relationship with, with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade? Is that even an issue? Or is it more about the use of public resources, uh, whether or not he's getting paid at a higher rate than other than other special assistants? Is that more of the issue here? I don't think it's as much how much he was getting paid versus others, but I think it's a question of how much she may or may not have personally benefited from money that was spent on her. Um, Because one of the allegations made in that court filing and one of the laws that Michael Roman believes that she might have violated is one that basically bars any sort of kickbacks for public officials that you might have given to a contractor and then gotten a kickback. Um, So I think that's the real danger. Like I said, there are optics issues, but those are political. Um, so in terms of what she paid Nathan Wade, $250 an hour, um, that's a lot when looking at the regular salary for a government prosecutor. But compared to attorneys in pro- public practice, $250 an hour is, is nothing. It's a fraction it's low, of yeah. what people In some cases, make. right? But we, we have been able to see some of the pay stubs from the two other special prosecutors working on the case. And D.A. Willis on Sunday mentioned she paid Nathan Wade the same as the other two special prosecutors. And based on what we've seen, that is not true. Um, John Floyd, um, the one of the country's top RICO experts who's been consulting on the case at different points, has made $150 an hour or $200 an hour. And Anna Green Cross, who did some of the arguing for the DA's team in some of these hearings over the last couple months, has made $200 an hour. Tamar, um, we know that f- we know that we heard uh, Fannie Willis's response at Big Bethel on Sunday, but of course she didn't address the whole uh, 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 motion that was filed by uh, Ashley Merchant about her relationship with Nathan Wade. But she, why would she? And help us understand this. She's she has a date, right? Scott McAfee has set a date for a response from the prosecutors on this motion. Not quite yet, but but he's expecting one, what, as early as February? Early February tomorrow? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought there was, okay, clear, okay. There's, so there's not a date yet tomorrow? Yeah, he wants to give the DA's office time to respond. And he actually, at the hearing on Friday, asked them straight up, Nathan Wade was sitting right there, if they wanted to respond right then and there, and they said no. Um, but he said he would wait for the DA's office to respond formally, and then he would set a hearing um, to hear those motions as soon as February. So what is the point? Maybe this is an unanswerable question. Um, If in fact it's true that this um, accusation probably doesn't have the power to derail the case, um, why would the prosecutor's office, why would Fannie Willis want to wait to do this in a response in court. I'm not quite sure I understand why she's not taking advantage of the opportunity to deal with this as fully as possible um, in, in in public without regard to what happens in McAfee's court. I think of this as kind of going on two tracks, right? There's the political track, the optics 
um, responding so that there's not this vacuum in terms of rhetoric to allow your enemies to to fill it with all sorts of things. And it, it, in that respect, a lot of us are surprised that we haven't heard from the DA's office let, yet because you've let reporters like us really get to pick around through people's backgrounds. You've let folks like Donald Trump be able to say whatever he wants without any sort of response from the DA's office. But then there's also the legal track where you've got to worry about the all-important judge who's going to be able to decide whether you can stay on this case, mm-hmm. whether this case gets to stay on track for their proposed trial date in in August. And you want to be very careful about every word that you're going to put in there and exactly how you're going to respond to every single allegation. So in that respect, you can see why they might take a little more time to dot their I's and cross their T's. Tia? Tamar, I wanted to ask about um, you. Something you just mentioned surprised me, first of all, that Bonnie Willis might not have been the most accurate when she said she paid all her special prosecutors the same. And along those same lines, um, the qualifications, you know, part of the filing regarding Nathan Wade is that unlike the other special prosecutor who's this known like expert in RICO, that there really wasn't justification for hiring him. He doesn't have the experience in these types of cases. Have you found that to be true? It's a tougher question to answer because on the one hand, the DA, as she mentioned in her speech at Big Bethel, has the power to hire whoever she wants. And I mean, If you've ever interviewed anyone for a job, you're limited by who wants to take it. And we know that the DA had offered this job to other people. We don't know exactly who, but people had turned her down. She mentioned how Nathan Wade was a trusted friend and somebody who she thought was a very good lawyer. Um, And he has had lots of experience as a criminal defense attorney. There are plenty plenty of folks who say he's never tried a, a felony case, which as far as we've seen, we've looked into it and doesn't look like he has. He spent um, a lot of his earlier years or, or doing misdemeanor cases. Um, so, yeah. Well, Tamar, thank you so much for joining us. I know we'll be delving much deeper and we'll be watching for Fonnie Willis's court response in that case. Well, that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Wednesday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze, Tropical Beach, Pina Colada, You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor. 
But I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show streaming now on AJC.com.